Hey guys, welcome to Goopfellas. Uh, today we're going to jump into something a little different than what we normally do. Will and I got a chance to sit down and talk about something that's really interesting to both of us, and I think to a lot of you guys will be as well. Uh, we took a little bit of a deep dive into the idea of ketosis and the ketogenic diet and trying to dispel some of the myths around ketosis. Also explain how it's a tool that Will uses in his practice in functional medicine and that I've used on my own personally to help reclaim my health. So it's a really interesting conversation. Yeah, definitely. I'm super excited for the opportunity to geek out with you on this. And I really think that the listeners of Goopfellas will really like this because a lot of people want to know about how to, you know, how to do the ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. And from somebody that, that uses this on a personal level, I use it on a personal and a clinical level. Um, I'm excited to get in this conversation. That's right. All right, let's jump into ketosis, or at least the conversation about ketosis. Primarily, as you know, like I, my week job, my day job is is talking to patients and seeing people uh, via webcam, like what they're going through, and all around the world. This isn't just an American thing anymore. It's around the world uh, autoimmunity and this sort of rise of chronic inflammatory issues. And I know one of the tools that that you have leaned into over the years is times in ketosis and the ketogenic diet and it's a buzzword obviously mm-hmm. so i um maybe I'll, I'll start with just briefly for those that are joining the show that haven't heard about the ketogenic diet it's a, a high fat moderate protein low carbohydrate diet and it's a way to shift your metabolism to become a fat burner or a ketogenesis is burning fat for fuel uh, and it is not just a way to burn fat which certainly excites a lot of people and maybe that's uh, you know definitely what gets a lot of people uh, perk their interest but what I-, I love from a functional medicine standpoint the benefits of the ketogenic diet done properly is its strong anti-inflammatory benefits. So um, not to get super like science nerd here, but the beta-hydroxybutyrate, that ketone that we produce naturally when we're in the state of ketosis, it's a strong anti-inflammatory, which what Seamus had gone through and a lot of people are going through are different types of inflammatory issues. This ketone that your body produces down-regulates these pro-inflammatory pathways, uh, things like NF-kappa B, uh, COX-2, the NLRP3 inflammasome, all these sort of pro-inflammatory cytokine cells that are high in people with rheumatoid arthritis or uh, there's over 50 million Americans with an autoimmune disease. The, the, most of these are inflammatory. Well, the ketone beta-hydroxybutyrate is a way to naturally lower that inflammation and also can pass through the blood-brain barrier to you. But I mean, how did, I mean, obviously people may know a little bit about your story, but you had, you ha- have auto, had autoimmunity Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, things got really bad. Can you kind of, for people that don't know, kind of fill us in on what happened sure. there? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I was a professional cook um, throughout my 20s and and uh, and became a chef in my early 30s. Um, that distinction just being where you are in the hierarchy of the kitchen. And um, I was focused really entirely on my career and without really realizing it, my health was starting to slip. And I started to get sicker and sicker. Um, I had all these pains that were coming out of nowhere, uh, acute attacks in different joints. I felt general malaise. I felt terrible all the time. And I kind of wrote that off as being part and parcel of being a chef and working 90 hours a week and that, you know, go hard or go home mentality, which is so ingrained in the idea of the kitchen. And yeah. to a degree, we even in the, in the kitchen, and this happens, I think, in other, other um 
in, in other careers as well, but in the kitchen, there's like this very incredible celebration of suffering. Like people love to brag about how hard they're working, who's working harder, or brag about the fact that they've never called out sick, you know, a day in God knows how many years, or they work through the pain and blah, 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 blah. And so we really do that. And I did that for so long until um, I got to a point where my body was just like, fuck you, you asshole, stop doing this to me. And I had to listen. I didn't have a choice but to listen. So I, you know, when things really started to break down, that's when I knew there was something severely wrong. And I ended up in the hospital. I'd been in the hospital many times for mysterious pains, but I didn't know what was going on. I ended up in the hospital and um, admitted to the hospital because I had what appeared to be a severe infection in my left hip. Um, and it was excruciating pain. I mean, I remember at one point in the middle of the night, delirious from pain, screaming for the nurse to try to get me a bone saw because I was like, I can cut my own leg off. I'm a chef. I know how to do this. And I was in wow. so much fucking pain. I'm like, little, I got to take my leg off. Um, yeah. Obviously, I was delusional. But that kind of gives you a sense as to how right. horrible this was. Uh, and 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 yet, you know, from the outside, I looked like a totally normal person. Um, you know, I was a bit overweight. I wasn't, I was inflamed, but I wasn't like, I wasn't disfigured. And I eventually, you know, after having a series of tests and seeing that my hip was full of fluid, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. So I didn't know anything about autoimmunity. I didn't know what RA was. I thought arthritis was a disease of the elderly. Um, I didn't know the distinction between rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis. Right. And, and, and even though intellectually I kind of knew that there was a correlation between food and well-being, I didn't really understand what that meant. Um, mm -hmm. and, and when I was diagnosed, I, I kind of like, I was like, okay, well now at least I have something to explain why I feel like shit all the time. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I also was kind of resigned to, I'm going to be sick for the rest of my life. I'm a sick person. And I started going through conventional treatment for um, autoimmunity, which was... Uh, it started with NSAIDs and um, and sort of low-level drugs like Plaquenil, which is actually a um, an anti-malarial drug. Um, and when those didn't work, then you know we moved on to heavier things like prednisone and methotrexate, which is a chemotherapy drug, and eventually uh, the biologic drugs, which which um, inhibit your immune system, so they repress your immune mm -hmm. system. And what all of these drugs are doing, what I didn't really realize at the time, is they're just causing, uh, making the symptoms less severe. Or in reality, they were just making the acute symptoms um, go away. I was still dealing with a chronic inflammation, and I actually got sicker. So a lot of these things that we kind of consider to be medicines were making me more vulnerable to infection. Um, they were making more, me more irritable. And then, of course, there was the pain medication, which I was taking to just be able to get through the day. And that became, um, it went from being a Band-Aid to a crutch to an addiction. Right, totally. And it's, it's just something that you and what you went through is something that I, I see, sadly, but on an hourly basis, people kind of fending for themselves, doing everything the doctors are telling them to do. I mean, for the most part, they're all compliant patients. And, right. and then they're stuck in this sort of endless pit of, pharmaceuticals, more symptoms, potential side effects from those medications. And, you know, I think that this conversation that we're having, I mean, so many people listening right now are struggling with chronic pain or autoimmune conditions or, you know, some sort of chronic health problem. Um, so I know one of the tools that you have integrated in your life, I mean, and maybe we should say this too. I mean, where, where is your health now for people that don't know? 
Yeah, I mean, now my health is is great, and I feel I feel very lucky. It's been eight years that I've been symptom free, and I've been off of medication, um, and it's not without a lot of work. And I think that health is something that it's not. It isn't. We talk about this a lot, and it's it's a total cliche, but it's not a destination. It is definitely a path that you're walking mm-hmm. on, and there's peaks and valleys. I've been very lucky now that I've been able to redirect the course of my well-being to mm-hmm. uh, be on a path that is that is I would say the majority. I'm very very healthy. I, I don't. It's not. I'm not without my struggles, and you're obviously not without your struggles. And everyone's not. Everyone has their own their own uh, their own challenges with their health, but. I'm, you know, I, I feel very fortunate that through a lot of hard work and through um, and through a lot, you know, community and support of great people, I've been able to to really take control of my health and, and be in a place where I feel great. You know, it's great to mm-hmm. wake up in the morning and feel good because that's something that for many, many, many years I never I, I'd forgotten what that was like. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that before getting sick, I took my health for granted. Once I got sick, I took my illness for, uh, I just sort of expected that that's what my life was. And after turning my health around, I, I'm grateful every day that I, that, I'm, that I have my health. I'm very grateful for it. Totally. And it's, it's such one of those things that for me, seeing what people go through is, is sobering on a daily basis because that line between like, having health and not having health sometimes is so thin and we do take things for granted and just to wake up with gratitude no matter where you're at on this sort of health journey no matter where you're at it's just say like what do i have going for me what do i have um what am i building today what what's the opportunity that i have to start moving in the right direction and for for those of us that do have health that do feel well like it is a, a good place to be in appreciation for what you have because uh, it can so quickly be taken away, and you know the you you had increased blood brain barrier permeability. Uh, someone that has leaky gut syndrome can also have increased uh, brain permeability. What they layman term is leaky brain syndrome, which is an unfortunate term, but basically th- inflammation <laughs> of the brain, the sort of mm-hmm. low grade cytokine activity, uh, and beta hydroxybutyrate is a way to lower that neurological inflammation, which you see a lot of more and more studies coming out about ketosis, lowering uh, neurological inflammation, helping mm-hmm. people with uh, MS and uh, obviously with epilepsy and seizure yeah, disorders and other new. autoimmune diseases. I mean, it's been used to treat epilepsy for over 100 years. So it's been, yeah. we've, we've kind of known this anecdotally for a really long time that it works for neuro- neurological inflammation. Yeah, and now it's beyond that, which is really cool. It's kind of stoked a lot of other research showing its benefits for metabolic issues, type 2 diabetes, other autoimmune diseases, obviously weight loss resistance. Uh, so it's a tool that that I use in functional medicine that I know uh, Frank Lippman, uh, who uh, Seamus has seen over the years, uses it as well. And intermittent fasting is part of that. It's a way to yeah. enhance ketosis and the more fat adapted you are, meaning the more you lean into this way of eating, the more you'll randomly just intermittent fast, not because you're willing it or thinking it, but something that Seamus and I have talked about on Goop Fellas before is that we will randomly not eat breakfast, not because we're thinking like, I'm going to fast, but because we eat when we're hungry. And when you are, mm-hmm. you have more blood sugar balance, you're more fat adapted, you're burning fat for fuel. You tend to be able to go longer windows uh, without eating. So Seamus, can you like fill the, the people in on like what, 
you have leaned into as far as ketogenic diet, what you've yeah. seen, how how you do it? Like, what's that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the one of the interesting things to consider when you're talking about the ketogenic diet or ketosis or, any, or, or this this is a tool is that it's nothing new, and it's really in many ways if you look at it, it's imprinted in our in our DNA. It's imprinted in our 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 ancestry. Um, as we have evolved as humans, we needed to go through historically long periods of time without food. And because our diet historically was very low in, in relatively low in sugars and, and, and certainly low in refined sugars and refined carbohydrates, we didn't have the same sort of fluctuation of blood sugar levels that, that we do in the modern standard American diet. And as a result, it was much easier for our ancestors to go longer periods of time without food. So, you know, our in in, in lean times, we would be able to uh, to go without consuming too much. And when there was food, we were like fattening up for, for a winter, for a long hold winter. And what happens now is that we're constantly in the state of fattening up for a winter that is never coming. So we're kind of like uh, seeing food. We see food. We need, we're like, oh, we need to consume this because we don't know where we're going to find food again. But the reality is that this food or food-like products are constantly available to us. So we, there's a bit of a shift. And the idea that, that ketosis is some new fad diet is is kind of ironic because it really is this ancestral way of eating that's been around as long as we as humans have been around um, yeah. to, to enable us as a tool to go longer periods of time without when we couldn't find food. But as you know, like you've talked, you talk a lot about autophagy as well, because the idea of fasting is giving your body a break to reset and to be able to effectively fast. Well, um, having being, being able to dip in and out of ketosis, and maybe it's good if we define like what ketosis is so that people yeah. understand it. Um, and, and I'll let you do that. And you can talk about like what the actual numbers in terms of millimolars of, of, of mm -hmm. ketones in your blood, um, define nutritional ketosis, but to be able to dip in, in and out of it and be, a fat burner is uh, something that all humans have the capacity to do. Yeah, totally. And again, it's this fat burning, but it's also this anti-inflammatory and cognitive boosting or enhancing state too. So it's just, again, it's it's by focusing on healthier fats. And we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like. I think mm -hmm. there's a definitely a dirty way to go keto. And maybe yeah. that's what a lot of people are seeing on uh, Instagram and social media, this this hashtag keto, just because mm -hmm. it's high fat, low carb doesn't mean it's healthy. And that's something that Seamus uh, and I are definitely on the same page with that. We are not advocating someone just getting into ketosis just for the sake of it and loading up on bacon and butter all day long. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that's good for most people for long-term health. And that's something I know Jimmy uh, Moore, uh, who I obviously uh, talk with on keto talk as well mm -hmm. that this is not the way to do it uh, but you can tap into the benefits of ketosis in a clean way uh, and this is a way you can measure ketones for people that are joining that aren't like keto people you can measure it on blood you can measure it via breath or urine which isn't so good for long-term like testing but i use when i do test i test like with the breath meter the gold standard still a ketone like blood meter but you're measuring trace amounts low amounts of of ketones uh you're in nutritional ketosis it's not the same as ketoacidosis people get that confused uh you're you have stable blood sugar normal blood sugar it's a not the same as ketoacidosis, which mm -hmm. is type 1 diabetics or out-of-control glucose and really high dangerous level ketones. That's not the same. You have normal blood sugar and you have nutritional ketosis level of ketones, which is, you know, maximum, you know, five, six, seven, eight uh, levels of ketones uh, when you're measuring via blood. Uh, so this is uh, a 
perfectly healthy place to stay. Uh, and um, the way that I do the ketogenic diet uh, is more of a cyclical ketogenic approach. And I talk about this at length in Ketotarian, and I do advocate a more like plant-based, a mostly plant-based ketogenic approach. I feel like it makes it sustainable. And I, th- I think for most people, a cyclical approach makes sense for long-term health. I think for a while, it could months and years for some people to repair that that insulin resistance or that metabolic inflexibility, they should be in ketosis longer periods of time. But once they've gained that metabolic flexibility, I think that most people can do a cyclical approach, which basically looks like, uh, you know, four to five days in ketosis, you know, high fat, lower carb from clean whole foods. Uh, And then the other remaining days of the week, you're moderating your carbs and you're increasing like, uh, instead of like being about 50 or, you know, under grams of carbs, you're having above 50 to 100 to even to 150 grams of carbs a day coming from things like sweet potatoes and yams and fruit and uh, stuff like that. Even like gluten-free grains like rice can be fine for many people. Uh, but then you've built that metabolic flexibility over those initial times of, of becoming a fat burner. Uh, have you, is that how, that's basically how you yeah, do your life, right? Yeah, that's kind of my approach. Yeah, definitely. For, for you, what, what I mean, just for people that are listening so they can understand, what does 50 grams of carbohydrates from a plant, you know, largely plant-based diet look like to you? Yeah, so it's going to be mostly non-starchy grains. It's going to be like things like salads, uh, anything you can you know make from greens. You can add them to sort of like keto smoothies using mm-hmm. uh, coconut uh, milk and avocados. And you can use uh, even sulfur-rich vegetables too, like a broccoli and uh cabbage and things to enhance methylation, which is sort of Mm -hmm. your body's natural detoxification hormone synthesis system. Uh, And you can have low fructose fruits too, things like berries. Uh, Obviously, you can sweeten things with lemons and limes and citrus uh, fruits as well. Uh, But the differentiation here, and I know this is maybe a contentious or a hot topic within the keto conversation is total carbs versus net carbs. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't want to bog it down with too much you know, detail and science on this, but the way that I advocate in ketotarian and with my patients that I put on a ketogenic diet, and not every person is on a ketogenic diet for my patients, but the ones that are, I educate them on the fact that fiber from plant foods is largely really beneficial. Uh, it mm-hmm. is needed for healthy gut microbiome and bacterial diversity. It's needed for uh, healthy detoxification pathways and clearing things out. It's good for balancing blood sugar. It's good from a satiety, like curbing appetite standpoint. So I, as long as people are eating vegetable plant foods uh, that are fiber rich, I have them be mindful of the fact that fiber shouldn't be counted as a total carb in most cases. So net carb is going to be the carb that's left after you subtract uh, the fiber Mm -hmm. uh, because fiber is needed. So a lot of times people, I think, get it wrong or become overly obsessive with carb counting Mm -hmm. and they become like orthorexic and and have anxiety over vegetables. Mm -hmm. I mean, vegetables are good things. And I think that's a pitfall of going keto that I want to really put out there that uh, you, if you're eating plant foods, 
unless you're you have it's an isolated incident the fiber is going to actually be really beneficial for long-term wellness and shouldn't mm -hmm. be feared um, and you don't have to be a math whiz to figure this out there are many apps as you're learning how food fuels your body just download chronometer or my fitness pal mm -hmm. or there's different keto diet apps that will track the the net carbs for you and then once you get the hang of it i feel like most people don't have to track uh food but at the beginning you're educating yourself yeah, super helpful how early on yeah yeah what what that looks like i mean what what's your opinion on that no the same way i i'm, I'm curious to know too and because we haven't talked about this too much but when you think about fat and protein so what's your target for macros for for fats in in, in the ketogenic diet what are you looking at on a daily basis yeah, so how I advocated for in ketotarian is really more than anything is just keeping your carbs low, moderating your protein, which is pretty easy when you are having a mostly plant-based ketogenic diet. Uh, for people that are eating more meat, I think that's the moderating the protein part that's is hard, more yeah. problematic. I think that's something and, a, lot of, a pitfall a lot of people fall into is that they they end up going overboard in the protein and then that kicks yeah. them out of ketosis. And so you, you end up with like a, right. a caloric surplus without the benefits of ketosis. Totally. Like calories are not everything, obviously, but calories are part of that. Right. And you have to take that into consideration because people can go hog wild, you know, <laughs> uh, on all this protein. Uh, and they're not really in full ketosis because of gluconeogenesis. Basically, it's stimulating the breakdown of glucose by having too much protein, which will stimulate the spike of glucose, the gluconeogenesis. But high fat, like it's going to be at least 60% fat, if not more, it could be 60 mm -hmm. to 75% fat. Uh, and that's coming from things like avocados, olives, nuts and seeds, their oils, so olive oil, avocado oil, coconut, coconut oil, coconut cream, uh, and macadamia nut oil, all those sort of clean mm -hmm. plant-based uh, fats. And then uh, vegetarian keto uh, would, would be like things like pasture-raised eggs and ghee, clarified butter. And then in ketotarian, I still advocate uh, pescatarian keto options too, mm -hmm. things like wild-caught fish, you know, fatty fish, uh, fresh seafood, things like that. But right. it's still predominantly plant-based keto. That's how I think most people um, will benefit from the ketogenic diet long-term. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just eating whole foods, which I know is a lot of how you advocate it yeah. you know, in Real Food Heals too. It's, it's, it's all real food. It's yeah. all stuff that our, our biochemistry, our genetics, which you opened the conversation up with, our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years. So we have to eat more in alignment with our biochemistry. So from an ancestral health standpoint, eating this way uh, is gonna be uh, in alignment with that genetics. Mm -hmm. No, I totally agree. And I think it's interesting to look at um, to look at evolution as a good as a good kind of indicator of nutrition too, because we we really got off the rails a couple hundred years ago with a with with the refinement of sugar and flowers. But it's really been in the past one hundred years that that we've deviated significantly from how we evolved to eat. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of the you know, I think that's part of the underlying cause for for the healthcare crisis that we're experiencing, not only as a nation, but now that we've exported worldwide to other other nations as well. So really, yeah, getting back in touch with, I mean, just I, honestly, the first step, it's not that complex. The first step is just cooking, mm -hmm. you know, literally cooking yeah. your own food. That's the first step, cooking your own food and eating it with people you care about. Community, super important. Um, totally. And and one of the things that, that I've noticed, I mean, I noticed in, my, in myself, but also in just friends, um, anecdotally, when when we cook, you know, when we actually cook meals and sit down and have a meal, we snack much, much less. 
because we're yeah. not eating absently. It's not like we're eating grazing throughout the day. And there are definitely some people that that do well in kind of a grazing um, mm-hmm. uh, model. But I think most of us do pretty well, even though the idea of structured meals is a bit of a s- social convention. Um, I do think most of us do pretty well with eating in windows. You know, mm-hmm. eat, eat the majority of your calories at one part of the day and then eat, you know, top it off at another part of the day. For me, I mean, I and what works for me is not necessarily what works for everyone, but it definitely works well for me to eat the majority of my calories somewhere in the early afternoon and then mm-hmm. try to have a lighter dinner on the early side. Now, I don't always do that. Um, I wish that I was better about doing it because the problem is I do like to socialize and that en- often ends up meaning eating after people are finished with work and it's seven o'clock, eight o'clock, and then and suddenly I'm having a later dinner. Um, but if I had my druthers, like if I were really to just eat for the weight for total for performance and fe- feeling as, as best as I could, I would eat the, the bulk of, I would say like 70% of my calories between one and three in the afternoon. And then I might have like the next 30% of my calories at you know, like six o'clock and that's that. I'd that's eat cool. them relatively close together, give myself a couple hours before going to sleep and then sleep and fast. And that would be like my ideal way of, of uh, caring for my body. That's awesome. You know, what I think would be cool um, for people that are listening out there for us to give like a typical day food wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you kind of touched upon it with your eating windows, which is really cool. But like, I know people want to know like what we eat in a day uh, so maybe we can talk about that. Like get, sure. you give yours, I'll give mine. And like, what's a typical cyclical ketogenic approach for you? Or when you're in like a lower carb state, what's that look like? People want yeah. to know what to pick I from. mean, I can tell you, I haven't eaten today, but I can tell you what I ate yesterday. And that is a pretty typical day for me. I didn't, I had coffee in the morning. Um, I've been using this, this uh, coconut creamer. It's actually a, a dehydrated coconut creamer. I like a lot in my coffee. So it's brewed coffee with that. Water. Um, that was about all I had until two in the afternoon. And then I had, uh, I had a crudite, lots of, lots of vegetables, some cooked, some raw, um, with an olive dip, like an olive tapenade and, uh, a piece of salmon. And then, and, and then in the evening I had, uh, a bunch of small, I went out to dinner and I had like a, uh, um, a radicchio, sal- small, like a radicchio salad, a, a t- heirloom tomato salad. And then a couple of small dishes, like one was pork ribs of pastured pork and a little bit of, um, of tuna. And that was it. But it was really good. Um, awesome. So that was kind of, you know, and you can see in there, that I, well, you can't really tell, but there were, there were no grains. There's no refined carbohydrates. There was no, yeah. there was no sugar. Um, There's very little fruit. There were some nectarines in one of the salad. That was about it. But yeah, so it was a, it's a naturally low carb way of eating, and I don't eat that. It's funny I, when I eat that way. I'm not like thinking, oh, I'm get, I'm I'm uh, like trying to be in ketosis right now. I got to be really careful. I'm just sort of that's I gravitate towards eating in that way, which is very low refined carbohydrates, low sugar, moderate protein, yeah. relatively high fat, um, and lots of vegetables. And I just that I eat that way because that's how I feel best when I eat that way. Yeah, same. We're on the same page there. I, I think that, uh, and you're gonna be in times of ketosis if not the whole day there um my day typically is the same kind of very similar but i mean i'm typically fasting in the morning i'm doing like a 12 to 6 time restricted feeding window uh specifically with my fasting in the morning i'll oftentimes do uh, like right even right now i'm sipping on this sort of iced earl gray tea which i don't think we've talked about it on mm-hmm. um, goopfellas before but basically earl gray tea has bergamot in it and bergamot has been shown to enhance 
autophagy, which you had talked about before. Mm-hmm. It's it, a, 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 breaking that word down, autophagy, it's self-eating. It's sort of your healthy cells mm-hmm. recycling and gobbling up the dysfunctional cells. So it's sort of your body's like natural anti-aging, anti-disease mechanism. That ketosis also enhances autophagy. So my thought is, okay, let's uh, upregulate and support healthy autophagy pathways with the time-restricted feeding, the intermittent fasting, and the Earl Grey tea uh, in the morning. And then I'll break a fast around noon, um, typically obviously seeing patients during the morning. So it's pretty easy for me because I'm busy and then I'm not even thinking about food. I'm not hungry. And then I'll be hungry around noon. Mm-hmm. And then like yesterday, um, I had like a, a pesto zoodle bowl. It's actually a recipe in Ketotarian, but it's like a, a vegan nut cheese, this avocado oil dressing, uh, you can add protein on it or not. I mean, I think there's enough protein on there. It's a lot of healthy fats uh, from the olives that are on there and the avocado oil dressing and the vegan nut cheese. And then for dinner, albacore tuna or like a um, pole-cut albacore tuna or uh, wild-cut salmon salad with some sautéed vegetables. I love these avocado fries that we make uh, with this chipotle aioli dressing. Mm-hmm. Um and that's like a typical ketotarian, like mostly plant-based keto uh, mm-hmm. day. But like if I'm going to do a cyclical keto approach, then you would bring in like a sweet potato in the evening or have a bowl of fruit uh, in the evening or have a bowl of, of rice. Uh, white rice is lower lectins. It's easier to digest. So I typically mm-hmm. would have some white rice. And what that does is it increases your carbs for that day, you'll probably be thrown out of ketosis a little bit or produce lower ketones. Mm-hmm. You're burning a little bit of sugar and a little bit of fat uh, for fuel. Uh, and what that does also by putting the carbs more in the afternoon and the evening, it helps with uh, serotonin production, which converts into melatonin, helps that with that sort of uh, like resting, digesting, helps sleep at night too. So you can mm-hmm. sort of leverage the benefits of carbs and their sleepy effect uh, by having them closer to dinner. So that's one little uh, mm. hack that yeah, people that's could cool. try. Um, yeah, so that's a typical a typical day for me. Do you see, um, as, as far as the ketogenic diet, have you ever tested ketones or you don't really mm-hmm. need to, do you? No, I know I have, yeah, of course, yeah. When I, the, like the first few times, early on when I first started, started reading about the ketogenic diet, probably eight or seven or eight years ago, um, and I still have, I mean, I have a, um, I have a, uh, a blood glucose meter and I, and the ketone strips are kind of expensive, so I don't do it that often, but, um, you know, also just measuring your blood glucose level. That was really interesting to me because one of the things I saw is that, um, you know, I'm definitely very carb sensitive or carb resistant. So when I eat things like white rice, my blood sugar spikes significantly. Um, and that was a really interesting indicator for me to, to check my blood in the morning, um, you know, fasting blood and, and see, and then look at what I'd eaten the day before and be able to start to identify patterns that certain foods like corn, for instance, um, corn, uh, beans, rice, all of those things would spike my blood sugar. And so, and, and then that was just kind of an indicator for me that maybe these weren't the best things for me to be eating. And as I've Mm -hmm. cut them out, I saw much more. Uh, I was able to see my blood sugar levels much more moderated and consistent. Um, and then, of course, just you know, measuring my ketones, being able to see how when you know when I was actually in nutritional ketosis. Can you yeah. can you explain for people that don't know what yeah. keto flu is? Because I think that's something that a lot of people are are hear about and they don't really know. They, sure. They're a little worried about it when they go into ketosis. Yeah, so they hear keto flu and they're like, what the heck? I don't want to give myself a flu willingly. 
but the it, not everybody goes through it but it's this metabolic transition standpoint where you're in sugar burning mode most people in the west that are listening to this right now that aren't keto adapted they they haven't tried the ketogenic diet yet they're in this sugar burning mode so it's like kindling on the fire you have to keep putting kindling on the fire to maintain that flame throughout the day uh, or else you get hangry and irritable and weak and shaky and have cravings. The alternative from a metabolic standpoint is burning fat for fuel. And that's like having a log on the fire. It'll burn longer, it'll be more sustainable, your blood sugar will be balanced. And that's in ketosis or ketogenesis or burning fat for fuel. Um, and sometimes when we have that metabolic transition from burning sugar to burning fat, you have that this, your actual cells have to be transitioned to to build that metabolic flexibility uh so your mitochondria is is making that transition to burning fat for fuel and that can create uh this this almost like metabolic purgatory in a way where your body's not getting the kindling that it was used to getting it's, you're not mm-hmm. having the refined carbohydrates and the sugar and the grains and all this stuff all day long but yet your body's not fully fat adapted yet even though you're focusing on healthy fats your cells have been spent years metabolizing sugar that you're not fully there yet so it's just sort of this transition period that some people make in burning fat because you're getting a new energy source a more sustainable energy source but a new one for many people but there are other components i believe from a functional medicine standpoint that is seen with people going through keto fuel not just from a metabolic like hey i'm burning fat for fuel now and that takes time from a cellular energy standpoint, but I also think it has something to do with some people's microbiomes. So people that can have, uh, this, the that microbiomes is all the term for the trillions of bacteria in our gut. So a lot of people can have bacterial overgrowth, things like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or candida, like yeast overgrowth. Basically, the microbiome in our gut is imbalanced. And when you aren't a largely bacteria and yeast in people's gut, feed on sugar. So when you're not eating sugar and you're eating a food that this your microbiome is not used to, uh, you can have Herxheimer or sort of die-off detox symptoms too, which I think for some people, what they call keto fuel is really just this reshifting of the microbiome in the gut uh, that takes time to shift, which is actually needed. Uh, mm-hmm. It actually, and studies show this, the ketogenic diet is a really good calibrator, a balancer of our gastrointestinal health and our gut microbiome. Uh, and this is part of the reason why it's so beneficial f- for our brain through the gut-brain mm-hmm. axis, this connection between our gut and our brain. So that's the keto fuel. Not everybody gets it. It normally lasts a day or two, maybe a couple of days. Uh, and it's sort of this sort of low-grade malaise or more fatigue because, again, they're not fully burning fat for fuel yet. That takes time to become mm-hmm. keto-adapted. Just stay hydrated, making sure your electrolytes are balanced. You can add some you know, Himalayan sea salt and some water. You focus on foods that contain electrolytes, which is why Seamus and I mm-hmm. advocating focusing on these clean uh, vegetables, which have magnesium, have potassium in them, which are the electrolytes that you need for, uh, for healthy function, healthy brain yeah. function, healthy energy levels is making sure your electrolytes are on point um, because sometimes when people are losing that inflammation and losing that that weight and that water weight when they're first becoming keto adapted, they can lose some electrolytes too. So it's so important yeah. that when you go keto, you're focusing on real foods that are nutrient dense, that have all those electrolytes inherently in them. 
Uh, wouldn't you say so? Yeah. And just like anecdotally, a really funny, funny story because yesterday I called you because I was feeling like shit and you were, and I was explaining what was going on and you're like, well, I think you might be dehydrated. And yeah. you were totally right. You're so, doing this killer <laughs> yoga class. Yeah. Was, well, it was also that I had like three days in a row had done um, three really intense yoga classes and worked out as well outside of that. And I sweat so much that by yesterday, middle of the day, I just felt exhausted. I, I like I couldn't. It was general malaise. I had no energy. I felt exhausted. And I was like, I'm drinking tons of water. I don't get it. But of course, the reality is like you can drink water until you're completely, you know, swimming in your own urine. You're not, you're not really rehydrating when you get past a point of dehydration. And and that's where like I actually had to, you know, I had to get replace some replace electrolytes, get salt into my body, get magnesium into my my body, get pot- potassium into my body, and then miraculously within like an hour and a half of pounding you know, two liters of hydration salts, I felt totally normal and fine. Awesome. That's great. I'm yeah. glad that worked for you. But it's a, um, it's a good lesson to listen to your body. And then sometimes, you know, it, the, the importance, particularly like when you're fasting and you are, and the other thing you, you mentioned, we were talking about autophagy before, that's an incredibly important time to make sure that you're hydrating because you want to totally. continue to, to, to clean your body out. Definitely. Well, I think we blew some people's minds talking about keto. Um, <laughs> we could talk about this all all yeah. day long. Um, yeah, I mean, I think but, what's great is that it's it's really a practical. I mean, it's it's not. I wouldn't. I don't think that people need to get so worked up about it and think that it's it's kind of it's like everything else. We get so fucking like att- attached to things as being uh, this is the end all and be all, and everybody's got to be in ketosis. And then all that does is it sparks a lot of arguments. And people mm-hmm. get very emotional about well, that's idiotic, and or this is this is brilliant, and and rather than just seeing things from your own experience and saying, well, this this actually could work for a period of time, or it's a good tool to have in my toolbox. Just like I think it's great to go periods of time without eating meat. I think it's great to go periods of time eating meat. I think it's great to experiment with different relationships with food and dial into a place that works for you. And this is just this is one more tool. What I love about your book is that you show people a very different way that's kind of like the non-fat approach or the non-kind of uh, in-your-face approach to understanding ketosis and how you can apply it mm-hmm. on a daily basis. And and then once it becomes a part of your, as I said, like in part of your toolbox, then you can integrate it, you can dip in and out of it throughout your, your daily life and um, and you can really start to see the benefits. Well said. And that was awesome. I'm I'm always stoked to talk with you about nutrition and about health. And I'm glad we took I'm glad we took the time to kind of focus a little bit on on stuff that is really important to both of us, but that we don't really get to talk about that often in a public mm-hmm. forum. Uh, and I think there's a ton of, of of good nuggets and takeaways for folks who are curious about the ketogenic diet or have been skeptical of it. Um, uh, I love how you break down and dispel the myths about it, meaning just you have to eat a ton of, of fat or and, and, and meet this idea of like dirty ketosis or dirty ketogenic mm-hmm. diet. Um, and I think for other people who are on a path similar to my path or have been or, or, or experiencing chronic illness, there's a lot of value in exploring um, dabbling in and out of ketosis. Definitely. And I think that we have a balanced perspective on this. We're not uh, ideologues when it comes to food. It's like you said in the in the conversation is that you want to find out what your body loves. This is not about becoming obsessive about macros or one size fits all approach, but really like we're both just saying, 
let's find out how to use food to make us feel great. And because we all have different activity levels and personal preferences and food sensitivities, all these different variables that make you, you and Mm -hmm. me, me, we have to like lean into this real food as medicine, which is such a commonality between, you know, everything that we talk about, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's personalizing it. So uh, I see the ketogenic diet as a way to gain metabolic flexibility, become a fat burner. And then from there, personalize it, try a cyclical approach, try intermittent fasting, try uh, like another way that I, I talk about is doing it seasonally from an ancestral health Mm -hmm. standpoint. So in in winter being in ketosis more, uh, and then in the summer having more seasonal fruits, this is a quite a balanced way to eat for our, our health. So Mm -hmm. yeah, thanks for talking about it with me. Absolutely. I love that metabolic flexibility. Got a question you'd like us to answer? The Goop team is keeping a running list for us, so just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. Okie dokie. It's time for another edition of AMA's Ask Me Anything. And I, uh, Joe wants to know, how do you get a 40-year-old man to take his health a bit more seriously? 40-year-old man, like that's like the, over the hill. Well, yeah. <laughs> one day- Don't when, take it personally. Shane. Yeah. Don't take one it. day when I'm 40, oh, good Lord, <laughs> I remember 40. It's pretty far in the- rearview mirror of my life. Listen, I think the best way to get a 40-year-old man to take his health seriously is to, I mean, in my case, before I was 40 and I was really sick and not taking care of my health, it took a near-death experience. Um, We talk a lot about like the first sign of a heart attack being a heart attack. So hopefully we can avoid that. But I think the most important thing is what are you living for? Is there Mm -hmm. something like, do you have, do you have kids? Do you have a partner? Is there someone in your life that you need to be there for? Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, ultimately I think you got to take care of your, you got to put your own, you know, oxygen mask on first, but knowing there's someone else that needs you is a good motivation to put your oxygen mask on. Oftentimes it's a, it's a scare, like looking around and seeing, oh fuck, my friend just died of a heart attack and he was 50. Do I want to be that person when I'm 50? And unfortunately, we, we do respond really well to fear. So I, mm-hmm. I, I would say, you know, it takes a little, a little bit of fear goes a long way. Understanding your own mortality, but also realizing that like turning 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or whatever it is doesn't mean you've got to get soft and achy and tired. We sort of accept that a lot of the things that we think are normal, like normal parts of aging, they're not really normal. We're just allowing mm-hmm. our bodies to fall apart because we're not caring for them. So it, it definitely gets yeah. harder the older you get. And the one piece of advice that I would give that I've definitely noticed in my own is that the, the decisions you make in your mid-30s definitely, definitely impact what happens in your 40s. And it gets exponentially harder to turn the ship around. So the sooner you can really address your health and the sooner you can take care of yourself, um, the easier it's going to be to have greater longevity and have a better relationship with your body for the rest of your life. Yeah, I think I would say too is that what you said about why are you here, that's powerful and get really getting like for the person that asks is like, how do you get a 40-year-old man to take his health more seriously? I would be getting into the why, but also 
a lot of guys can really it resonates when they look at data and numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say yeah. getting some labs done, like and looking at where they're at, not just the reference range, but like the functional optimal healthy range. And then that starts a conversation of like, okay, wait, no, my energy isn't where I want it to be. Oh, my libido, my sex drive isn't where I want it to be. Oh, my, oh, I mean, my sleep, whatever it is, it starts to wake up this sort of conversation that they're maybe not even in tune with their body, that this is not how they want to live. And as you said, I mean, just because something's common doesn't make it normal. Chronic disease, growing prescription lists are certainly commonplace, but it shouldn't be normalized. So, um, yeah. Great, great question. Amen. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.